would like to say this to more, more people need to hear this than I really hear, but I, I just want to express our thankfulness to all you guys, uh, not just for all those who made the shower happen and all of the wonderful gifts and cards and everybody who checked on us over the weekend, um, but really for the greater trend uh, of this church just showing uh, their love and compassion for my family since we've been here. Um, when I left Rogersville, Alabama for the tiny little town of Dover, Tennessee, I, I did so convinced that this is where God wanted me to be. But it's uh, icing on the cake to be loved by such a wonderful community as we have here. So, thank you. If you have your Bibles tonight, turn to Matthew 6. So we're continuing to move our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And while you are turning there, I want to give you something to chew on, pun intended. Do you ever stop to consider how much we eat? And if you struggled with your weight, and you've probably done this at some point, either counted calories in an attempt to cut back, or, or really watched what you ate, or even weighed food. I've heard some people do that. But here's just some statistics. These numbers are about 10 years old. I had a hard time finding updated. But as of 2010, the average American eats per year 29 pounds of French fries, 23 pounds of pizza, 24 pounds of ice cream, 53 gallons of soda over a gallon a week, 24 pounds of artificial sweeteners, 2.7 pounds of salt, which puts us somewhere on average of roughly 2,700 calories a day. Before you start gathering your things and heading for the exits, do not worry. The rest of the lesson will not be a lecture on dieting. I say all that just to express that, that the truth is very few of us probably know what real hunger looks like. Now, some of you might remember time, uh, maybe a time or an era when things were different, when food was not as plentiful when you went to the grocery store and they didn't always have it stocked with food, or maybe even some of us have been through lean periods in our life where we didn't know exactly if our check would clear at the grocery store, if really where our next meal would come from. But the truth is, most of us have probably never really experienced real hunger for any significant length of time. Most of us. And so I say that because I think that might color a little bit what we have to study when we look at what the Bible says on fasting. As I said, most of us have probably never felt true physical hunger all that regularly. And even if we have, well, we've always, at least in my lifetime, and I understand that's nothing compared to some people in the room, but in my lifetime, we've never been that far away from food. Even our little town of 2,000 people has a number of food options. One grocery store, but it's all right, I suppose. But with all the options for food around us, we, we probably rarely feel true hunger for very long. And I think that can color when we read what the Bible says about fasting. I would argue that in a similar way, many Christians have never had a real spiritual hunger. Our habits, be it prayer or even Bible reading, are, are probably not consistent enough to truly cultivate a burning hunger for the things of God. Yes, maybe we feel guilty if we miss more than a couple Sundays. But what about just from Monday to Thursday? By Friday, are you saying, man, I haven't studied my Bible, and I, I missed class, and I, I need to be closer to God. I hope that is true for the church, but the truth is many Christians, we're, we're content to fill ourselves up with, with maybe little snippets of spiritual truth here and there, maybe a, a feel-good video or reel on social media, and it masks a true spiritual need. And so we feel like sometimes either, like I said, reading a couple of verses or seeing a nice picture, an inspirational video, we, we've gotten our, our little snack with God. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but we, we can't live just off little snacks. 
Whether we're talking about food or spirituality, 1 Corinthians 3.2 talks about the proper spiritual development from baby food, essentially, to a, a real spiritual meal. And so there ought to be seasons in our life where we, where we really dig in and we spend the time and energy to get a real meal, if you will, in our relationship with God. And so how do we overcome that complacency? How do we get past the mundane, normal life and, and really experience a deeply felt hunger for our need for God? We've already been discussing one tool for a couple of weeks. I would say prayer is very effective at developing hunger for God. We've talked for a couple of weeks about different topics in prayer, how to pray as Jesus did. And if you pray along those lines, you will grow in your understanding of your dependence on God, your need for God. Before Jesus moves on to other areas of teaching, he gives us a tool to help us sharpen our focus on our relationship with him. And that is the tool of fasting. This is a spiritual discipline that was often abused in his day, as we examined this morning. And so we're going to take some time this evening to deal not just with this single passage in Matthew, but really what the Bible says as a whole about fasting. And I know we read this this morning, but I'll read just a couple of verses in case you weren't with us. From Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and watch your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I want to mention a couple things, just to be transparent, I guess, before we talk much further. And the first would be that I do not practice this spiritual different discipline. And in my notes I said as often as I used to, but the truth is I don't. I've not practiced this like I should, as you can probably tell. But fasting is of great importance. This is the second thing I just, in terms of being transparent, was that you will find a wide variety of Christian ideas and opinions based on interpretation of Scripture as to what Christian fasting really looks like and why we should do it. And this morning, or I'm sorry, this evening, I just want to tie together a few different examples from the Bible and a few things that I've noticed in studying scriptural examples of fasting. Fasting is a spiritual and physical response to a spiritual and or physical need. A need to seek God's face that actually overrides our desire for inner comforts. And fasting may not be something we, we practice or engage in regularly, but at its core it is a strong response to the awareness of this need. It might not be a perfect definition, but I think it seems to do justice to the, the testimony of Scripture on this topic. And so I want you to see just the four facts about fasting from Scripture. The first one is from Matthew 6, as we read. We talked about this a little bit this morning, but that is that fasting is assumed in Jesus' sermon. Notice how he sets up his teaching on fasting. He does not say, if you fast, but when. And I read the selected verses that we did from the passage this morning and again tonight so that we could see that that same language and that same structure and that same style is, is exactly how Jesus teaches on giving in verse 2 and 3, on prayer in verse 5 through 7. And yes, I, well, I did mention this morning that, that praying and giving and fasting were all three uh, Jewish spiritual disciplines. That does not exclude them from being Christian spiritual disciplines. 
I don't imagine any of us would read the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, Jesus doesn't really mean to give to the poor. Well, he doesn't really mean to pray. So it stands to reason that just like we should pray and we should give, based on this passage, we should also fast. It's also interesting to note that Jesus' disciples did not fast while Jesus was with them. The other restriction on fasting from the Gospels. This is from Matthew 9, 14. And the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And I don't want to get too much into getting into the weeds, so to speak, on Jesus' bridegroom language here. But notice he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, referring to himself, then they will fast. While Jesus was present on the earth, his disciples didn't fast. Maybe they were just too busy. They were just burning so many calories, walking everywhere. That Jesus said, we got to eat, guys. But Jesus affirms that, yes, there will be times of fasting after he leaves. And so the assumption is that New Testament Christians will fast at some point in our walk with God. Now, just as I said, there are many different perspectives on this topic. I, I will admit that even though I am saying this, we do not see fasting explicitly commanded in the New Testament. In fact, the only routine fast that is ever commanded by God is actually in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23, where, where God commands that they fast in preparation for the Day of Atonement. He says to afflict, to humble your souls, a, a common Old Testament phrase for fasting. And the Jews had additional fasts as sort of commemoration of na national events, but these weren't really commanded by God. But there are other times where, where God causes people to fast in response to sinfulness. So we have the, the regular scheduled fast with the Day of Atonement, which is really the only scheduled fast that is commanded in the Bible. But there's also this time that where, where fasting becomes a response. And I'll use that term a lot in our lesson tonight, the idea of fasting as a response. Because God calls his people to, to fast in response to sinfulness. And so there's not a regular day of fasting that Jesus describes. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, they, they were so good at acting spiritual and acting right with God that they had gotten to the point where they would fast twice a week. But more on that a little bit later. But the fact of the matter is that the fasting is not commanded anywhere in the New Testament. But nonetheless, I believe it is clear from Jesus' words and the testimony of all of Scripture that fasting is an assumed response. It is an assumed spiritual discipline. So let's, let's talk about this idea of a response. So fasting is modeled throughout Scripture, and I'm going to list a few just in a moment. But when you look through the, the, the historical sections of Scripture, you find many of the great men and women of God participated in fasting. Many of the Psalms of David proclaim or reference the idea of fasting. Here's just a few from the, the history of God's people, and many of these you might recognize or would be familiar with from other studies we've done as a church, but just in, in no particular order. Moses fasted on Mount Sinai. He fasted in preparation for the, for the, as a response to the giving of the law in Exodus 34. Daniel, again anticipating a prophetic word from God in Daniel 9.3, Daniel sets a time for fasting. We see Mordecai in the book of Esther. Mordecai and the people of Israel beg when they're in the midst of the turmoil and the issues and political things going on. and They're, they're begging for God's intervention. They pray, but they also fast that God might spare them from this evil decree being put out by the king. That's Esther 4.16. 
the nation of Israel fasts in response to this, this civil war that's happening. This civil war the scriptures call foolish from Judges 20 verse 26. It was tearing apart God's people. And as a response to sort of mourning this situation, the people fasted. Nehemiah, mourning over the sad state of the city of Jerusalem. Before the rebuilding process begins, he, he fasts in sackcloth and ashes, Nehemiah 1.4. When David is begging for the life of his child in 2 Samuel 12, and mourning his own sin, he sets aside a time for fasting. He fasts again at the loss of Abner in 2 Samuel 3. The book of Jonah, when the people realize their, their need to repent, their need for forgiveness from God in Jonah 3, the people of Nineveh fast. A couple examples from the New Testament. The church gathers and proclaims a fast before the laying on of hands and the sending out of missionaries. The same thing they do whenever they appoint elders. That's from Acts 13 and from Acts 14. And then, of course, Jesus... Jesus himself fasted 40 days in the wilderness. And so these are just a few of these many examples of the people fasting in the Bible. And again, you might notice that fasting is often a response to a unique situation. It's a response for, for the people of God needing to hear from God, needing God's intervention, or, or expecting God to act in some major way. We also see the prophets prepare for God to work by fasting. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about different types of fasts. We might read Jesus' fast of 40 days in the wilderness and be like, okay, how, uh, is this a miraculous event? How does someone go 40 days of, of fasting? Well, in a normal Jewish fast, you would actually just not eat until after sunset. This is reflected in actually other, what we would call Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam today. But they wouldn't eat food until after sunset. Other times there would be a partial fast where they would abstain from a, a certain kind of food or even an activity for a season of time. And so both of these were fasts that could last several days, such as that 40 or even up to multiple years. But other times you do have a complete and total fast, no food or water at all. Very intimidating kind of fast, <laughs> you ask me. These, when this happens, it's usually not much longer than a single day. But regardless of how God leads his people to fast, Scripture shows that fasting is, at some points in time, an appropriate or even necessary response to what is going on. We talked a little bit this morning about motivation. And something I want to mention is that it, unlike common nutritional sort of dietary trends, fasting is not a detox. It's not a cleanse. But fasting is at its heart a spiritual activity. As you look through the stories of men and women who fasted and who sought God, we see that it is first and foremost a spiritual activity. And so though, although fasting involves limiting food and water, abstaining, it is not just for the sake of the body. It is a, phys it is a spiritual response that is manifested physically. So many diets today will start off with a, a cleanse or a fast to sort of kickstart a diet. There's a big push in health circles with this habit of intermittent fasting where you, you plan on eating for a certain time window of the day. And although these kinds of fasts might be physically beneficial, and it might be good for us to say we're going to take care of the body God has given us, they're actually not what Jesus is, is talking about. These are not spiritual fasts. In fact, if you decide to fast and do nothing but simply avoiding food, I would argue that you are missing the point of fasting. 
fasting in Scripture is always designed to, to point you to prayer, to point you back to God. And so these two ideas are inseparable. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul is speaking of a different kind of fasting. But, but I think it does perfectly encapsulate the, the argument for the purpose of fasting. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And so fasting has this purpose of driving us towards God, receiving blessing from a fast, receiving the reward or noticing a benefit like anything requires solid commitment. Arranging special time every day with God is critical to, to attaining that intimate connection with God in fasting. You must devote yourself to seeking God's face, even, and I would say especially, especially when the fast begins to have those physical effects, when you feel irritable, when you feel vulnerable, when you feel hungry. Those are the times that you, you should take those physical desires and focus on God. In a practical sense, this might look like going to your car during a lunch break. And rather than eating, taking the time to maybe read or to pray. Take time for solitude either in the morning, during mealtimes, or in the evening, and to meditate on God. To reflect on the application of his word, on his will for your life. You can even sing praise to sort of set your mind on things that are above. When David speaks of his fast in Psalm 69.10, he says, When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. And he's speaking of actually in this context the, the inefficacy of his fast. But later on in verse 30, he says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. David joins these ideas of praise and fasting. And so we ought to use that time to, to focus on our Heavenly Father, to make every act one of, of praise and worship and dedication to him. And through that, God can enable the experience of that command that says, pray without ceasing. Paul describes his life as a, as a constant prayer, as a constant communion or a constant communication with God. Fasting can help us set our minds on that communication with God. As I mentioned earlier, fasting is not simply a physical act, but it's, a, it's primarily a spiritual response that is demonstrated physically. And I keep mentioning, again, this idea of the response, because in the fast you find in Scripture, there is the common response of, of humbling oneself when we fast, of depriving yourself physically so that you recognize who God is and what the priorities in your life ought to be. Other times it comes out of grief and mourning, perhaps the loss of a loved one, or even grieving many times, as, as David's was in Second Samuel, as Jonah and the people of Nineveh did in response to repentance. It's grieving our own sin our own selfishness. And so that time of fasting is spent to humble ourselves in light of sin. The other purpose for fasting we see in those scriptures is that fasting can be a sense of almost, and I hesitate to use this word, but almost a desperate expression of need for God. And I don't really want to call it a spiritual last resort, but we see it as this almost this tool that is only pulled out in, in times of dire need, of, of criticality, such as in that, that passage of Esther I mentioned, Esther 4.16. The people are fearing this decree that will literally result in their death. And they gather together and they, they pray and they fast and they say, God, please intervene for us. And so it's almost perhaps out of desperation, but out of a cry to God. A cry of need 
towards God to guide them. Other times, it's in a, that guidance comes in the form of a decision or a new venture or ministry, as those passages with the church in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And it's not because fasting is some attempt to sort of twist God's arm. It's not a hunger strike before God. You might have seen a little kid, whenever you tell them to do something, they, they threaten to hold their breath until you give them what they want. It's like, okay, go ahead. It's not really how it goes with God. It's not to, to sort of convince God or pressure God to act. It's not even a tool to impress God, as we talked about this morning. But fasting is a tool by which we humbly acknowledge that we need God. That we need God in our lives. We need to seek Him above all things. It reminds us that the, the spiritual things are higher than the physical things. It reminds us that we need God to guide us. We look for Him to, to answer or provide in the situation even more than we need physical sustenance. You say, God, I need you more than bread and water. I need you to act. Some people feel led to make fasting a regular practice, weekly, monthly, or at certain times during the year. Others only fast when they find themselves facing a large decision, or they feel a sense that they need to surrender to God in some unique way. But the testimony of Scripture is clear that we ought to spend time with God to discover how he wants us to use this tool, this spiritual discipline, in our life. One more thing I want to mention about fasting is that fasting is personal. Going back to that, that passage in Matthew 6, fasting is again a matter of the heart, first and foremost. But like anything else, it's not an attempt to show others or to show God how, how amazing, how pious, how holy you are, but really how much you love God. It's a humble heartfelt response to, to understanding our need for God. I mentioned that the Pharisees would fast twice a week. They would actually fast on Monday and Thursday, which were the market days. So they could tell as many people as possible that they were fasting. They could walk by all the booths of food and say, oh no, I'm not, I'm not buying anything today. You see, I'm fasting. I mean, how selfish. How it is really the opposite of that fasting from the heart. That's why Jesus calls them the hypocrites. He calls them fake. They would put on the old ratty clothes and what Jesus referenced. We didn't talk too much about the language he uses in, uh, this morning, but when he talks about disfiguring themselves, some of them would even actually use makeup or oils to make themselves look sickly so that people would recognize their fasting. Which is why Jesus tells them God is not impressed by their fasting. We ought to let fasting come out of a genuine response, a recognition that you need God's guidance his forgiveness, his peace, his restoration. But remember that just like giving in with prayer, we don't tell the world, but we do it that we might bring ourselves in line with how God wants us to be. We come before our Heavenly Father, the one that Jesus says who sees in secret, seeking him not just with our spirits, but with our bodies as well. I think fasting is a great example of Jesus says, Serving God with all your soul, all your might, all your strength. It's telling God, I love you more than the food on my table and the water that I drink. It's a spiritual response to a, a physical response to a spiritual need. Where our need to seek God overrides that desire for comfort. And so as we begin to close this evening, I want you to think about what God wants you to do with this message. Maybe fasting is for you. Maybe you say, you know what, that's, that's really great, but it's just not for me. 
I think that's probably most of our instinctual response for fasting. But I want you to think about it. If we did a whole lesson on prayer like we did last week, and at the end of that lesson on prayer, you said, you know, that's really great, Brother Terrence, but I just don't think prayer is for me. As I said, it didn't have to be 40 days of no bread and water. Maybe it's some time in the morning. Maybe it's just that, that traditional Jewish fast of not while the sun is up and only eating after sunset and saying, you know what, I'm going to, just because I can, I'm going to bring my body in submission to God. But I do encourage you to form some, some form of response. There are plenty of situations around us that would be worth praying about. Maybe, like me, it's, what is it, not even, not even really the fall of 2023, and we already sort of feel this dread for next year's cycle. The spin-up, the wind-up of, oh my goodness, we're living all this tension, and the, the battling, and the, the stuff that just gets you down. Perhaps fasting could be a response to sort of navigating the political turmoil in our country. Perhaps fasting is an appropriate response to our, our search for church leadership, for the appointment of elders and deacons. That's one of the exact examples of fasting in the New Testament, certainly. You may have situations in your own life that you think about those examples of God's people uh, looking for forgiveness of sin or mourning their own sin, and you recognize, you say, you know, God, I've strayed from you, and as a response, I'm, I'm going to discipline my body so I can bring myself more in line with how you operate. There are certainly many things you could fast about or in response to. But I ask that you reflect on any needs in your life that you're ready to get serious about, that you're ready to devote time to prayer and fasting. Perhaps the starting point is just for you to ask God to break your pride and to help you see how really desperately we need Him. As He does that, it might lead you into a time of seeking Him that results in fast. But the truth is, we could never fast or pray long enough to get ourselves right with God. We are made right by agreeing to God that we have sinned, from turning to that sin, and for calling out on His Son to save us, for becoming obedient to the gospel, for committing ourselves to letting Him lead and guide us in the will for our life, and for ultimately make that decision to put Him on in baptism. If you're with us tonight, and this invitation for baptism or the confession of a need is on your heart or on your mind, we ask that you make it known while we stand and while we sing. After Jesus, He will.